Thank you so much, Phil. Well, welcome. Welcome to Ironworks Church. I want to go back to the beginning with you uh, today, and I want to do that by showing you a picture. I want to know um, who is able to recognize this place? Who might be able to say, I know where that is, or I know what that is? Anyone able to say? Well, that's the garden tomb. The garden tomb in Jerusalem, Israel. And um, many people say, this may be where Jesus Christ was buried and rose from the dead. And it's a wonderful place to go. It's, it's beautiful to sit there and think about what it might have been like when Jesus rose from the dead. This is the outside of the tomb. If we go inside and we look from the outside, we see it's, a, it's this, this stone tomb on the inside. And I don't know if you can see this, but um, here, if, if you look through the doorway, you can see this uh, like round stone there. In the end, that's set apart on the, uh, away from the stone. And that's a round stone that, that used to be in the slot before the door. And so it could be rolled across the door uh, to close the tomb. So kind of a neat <clears throat> confirmation there. And then if you turn to um, the left, there is this shelf where it's a, a burial shelf where a body could have been laid. And what's really neat is that if you go around to the, to the hill opposite uh, on which this garden tomb appears, you see this cliff face and there's something really peculiar about this cliff face. If you look at it in the right light, you can see something. Can anyone tell me what they see in the cliff face? You can shout it out. Well, a skull. You see that? I don't know if you saw it, but there's eyes here, eye sockets, and a nose. And so if you kind of squint, you can kind of see a skull, can't you? And so you might call this the place of the skull or Golgotha, right? And so this is a wonderful place um, that many people go to think about Jesus rising from the dead. Only one problem with it. This isn't where it happened. <laughs> it's a wonderful, inspirational place, but <clears throat> we can be pretty sure that it's not happened. That didn't happen here. And one of, the, one of the ways we can know this is because from the time of Jesus and the apostles, there has been a continual presence of Christians in Jerusalem. There's never been a time when there haven't been Christians living in Jerusalem, all the way down to the present for the last 2,000 years. So if you think about it, um, these people were able to say where it happened. If you were a Christian in the beginning, right, wouldn't you... Well, uh, know where it happened. Wouldn't you go and visit it? Wouldn't you tell new converts who came in and say, and said, where did it happen? Wouldn't you pass that along to them and to your children? And so this is something that they know, and people did not say that about this site. Um, we know that because from the time of, of the crucifixion, which would be 30 AD, to about 100 years later, at that time, there was a real purge against Christianity. And Hadrian, the emperor Hadrian, he really hated Christianity. He wanted to wipe it out. And so he looked at the places where Christians said this is where it happened, and he raised it to the ground. He just demolished it. 
and he built a Roman temple on top of that site. Um, so the Roman temple has never been here. But there was a Roman temple that just sat there. Well, the people of, of uh, Christians of Jerusalem still knew where it was. They could go to the temple, go inside the temple, say, here it was, here it was. So that a couple hundred years later, when Queen Helena showed up, and some of you might know from history, Queen Helena was the mother of the great emperor Constantine. And she came and asked the bishops, again, continual succession of bishops in Jerusalem, where did it happen? Because she was a strong believer. And so she came to the Holy Land and said, where did it happen? Where did Jesus die? Where was he crucified? And where did he rise? Where was he buried and rise again? And they said, well, they brought her to uh, the place where the, the Roman temple was and said it was here. Now, with the resources of the Roman Empire, she excavated she and Constantine excavated that place and car carved off the top of the cave of the, of the tomb that was there. And then she built a chapel on top of it. And she built a basilica next to it where he died. And uh, kind of messes it up, right? Messes up the inspiration if you wanted to go there. But that's what she did. And that's the way it stayed for another several hundred years. And we know this from literary sources that in 1009, the Sultan of Cairo, the Fatimid Sultan of Cairo, his name was Hakim. Hakim, he really had it in for Christians. He just wanted to wipe Christians off of the earth. So he also came and found out where did it happen. And uh, this, this Sultan, I mean, he was just um, adamant about this. He was fanatical. And so what he came and did, and he just tried to wreck everything that was associated with the memory of Jesus Christ. In fact, we have records of him, uh, of his people taking pickaxes to try to break up where the tomb was. They said, where was it? And try to break it up with these pickaxes so that it would be erased. So again, people kind of messing up the scene here. <laughs> and then 50 years later, the crusaders came and said, where did it happen? Again, bishops said, well, here it is. It's been here. They built a church over it. They built actually a basilica and <clears throat> a chapel over it. And so it stayed. So if you go to Jerusalem, now I want to show you where likely that place is. And uh, this is what it looks like. This is kind of the middle of Jerusalem in the old city. And right here... In the middle, you see something called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Right here, if I can draw this well. Um, and that is where people say this is where it happened. And again, kind of interesting to look into this um, because it's one of the most history-laden spots on the, place of, on the face of the earth. You have this church right in the middle um, the problem with it that people have always said is, you know, people thought for a long time, this can't be it. This can't be the place because this is inside the city walls. City walls go, go around. And we know from John 19, John tells us that Jesus Christ was crucified near the city, but outside the city walls. So people said, well, the, this church, they, this couldn't be what they were talking about when they said, here it is uh, all through history. But then, 30 AD walls were found that ran right along here, if I can draw it. 
with the city um, to the east. And you realize that in 30 AD, this area was outside the walls of Jerusalem. Um, so suddenly, people realize, wow, this has always been said to be the place, and here it is, outside the walls of Jerusalem. And it was only 11 years later, when Herod Agrippa, only 11 years later, built what they called the Third Wall, because uh, Jerusalem is really, really vulnerable to the north. He built a wall all um, around here, you know, and it, it went out for a ways. And then the Church of the Holy Sepulchre was encompassed in that. So only 11 years later, this church was no longer outside of the city, city walls, which is one of the things that argues for its, uh, for its authenticity. Because for the last 2,000 years, it hasn't fit with the story. It hasn't been outside the city walls. So for, for 2,000 years, people have said, this is not in, outside the city walls. This is not part of, of what became the text of the New Testament and so it kind of argues for its authenticity, right? Because if people were going to make up a site, if they were going to say, well, let's just say it happened here, they wouldn't, say, they wouldn't put it inside the walls, right? So it's one of the things that argues for the authenticity. But there's something more important um, that I'm going to uh, talk about uh, in the sermon to help us understand uh, that we can be certain about this. But let's go inside. And children, I know you're drawing. You have uh, uh, instructions in your guide. And um, let me just say, instead of what you have in your guide for the picture you're going to draw, I want you to draw what I show you inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, okay? Because I think it fits better than, than what uh, we had written down. So we're going to go inside. And when you go inside, this is what you see, okay? Now, this is kind of depressing, when you go in, because you want to see the garden tomb, right? You want to be inspired. You want to meditate on what it was really like. Instead, you see all of this gaudy um, tinsel and censors and uh, uh, marble and uh, metals. And this is supposed to be, this is where they have built something, this church, over Golgotha, over the place of the skull, over the place where Jesus was crucified. But it's really hard to get a sense of what it was like because it's just so gaudy. Uh, and if you go the kind of close up here uh, on the bottom here, if you go along to the side, there's a place where you can actually stick your hand in and touch the rock if you want to. And I've been there and I've done that. Let me tell you, it's not a great experience because you think about it. After millions and millions of people over a thousand years have stuck their hand in to touch that rock, it's really kind of grimy. And uh, it's kind of slimy to the touch. It's like, uh, this is, you're like, I'm not getting it here. You know, I came to be inspired about where Jesus died, and it's really hard. It's kind of like a carnival atmosphere. Um, so it kind of is kind of gross, really. Then we go to uh, ne next door to it in the church, and we come to the edicule. And children, you're going to learn a new word here, and this is the last time you'll ever use that word, edicule, because uh, you never use this word outside of talking about what's inside the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. But here it is, the edicule that marks the place where the grave was. And again, all of this um, gaudy 
paraphernalia. It's all of these crowds that are always there. Here's it from the side. If you look up, this is what you see. You don't see the sky, you know, the grave under the sky. You see this, this kind of enclosure with all of these sensors. And you will say, well, let me go in and actually look at the grave. So when you go in and look at the grave, this is what you see. This is, this is it. And you're like, this is it? It's encrusted with marble. <laughs> there are these candles. There's a picture of Mary there. It really offends our sensibilities as Protestants. And you're like, this, I, I came here to be inspired, and I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling it. And this is why Protestants in the 20th century found the tomb that's called the garden tomb and said, maybe it happened here. <laughs> maybe it happened here because the garden tomb is so wonderful to sit in front of it. You even have these bleachers set up so you can sit there and you can meditate. You can think this is what it must have really been like uh, to have it gone, uh, to have Jesus when he, rose, when he rose from the dead and he came forth. And so you just get this feeling going to Jerusalem that if that was the authentic spot, people really messed it up. Whenever you get people involved, they mess things up. And you can't, you can't go there without having this feeling like, boy, this really got messed up. I would really love to come and be able to experience kind of the sights and sounds and smells of what it was like when Jesus was buried, when he was crucified, when he, and when he rose from the dead. But it's like people got involved. And so they messed it up. Please stand, if you would, and let's read our scripture this morning. Amanda's going to read to us uh, this account from the Gospel of Matthew. Here we go. Our first scripture this reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 27, verses 33 to 35, 50, and 59 to 60. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, there they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Continuing to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 16-20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Thank you, Amanda. Yeah, yeah. When you have real people involved, it doesn't go the way that you plan it. You know, I've married now a number of couples, and whenever I'm going to marry someone, I always sit down with them right before the wedding, and I tell them, listen. It is not going to go the way you have planned it to go tomorrow when you have the wedding. And some of these uh, people are great planners, and they've planned it all out. They have everything covered. I'm like, great. But the problem is there are people involved. <laughs> and whenever you have a lot of people involved for something to happen right, it's fraught with the possibility of mishap, as Jeeves would say. 
So I'm telling them, I'm trying to warn them, trying to say it's not going to be just like you think. Maybe, maybe a lot of good things will happen, but you just got to remember at the end of the day, you'll still end up married. And uh, they say, no, no, it's going to go just what we got. We have all these things. People are very reliable. I'm like, I'm telling you. <clears throat> and then afterwards, you know, they look at me and they say, wow, how does he have such sage wisdom? How did he know that? <laughs> And, and the answer, folks, is just, all, it's, all it is is to know if you have people involved, it's not going to go the way you think. It's not, they're going to mess up the plan. That's what it is to have real people uh, involved in the plan. And so that's what happens. I remember um, one time I planned a party for my, for my little kid, a birthday party. And I was... I was so into this. I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this the best birthday party. And so I designed a scavenger hunt. And we lived in a high rise at the time. It's this um, 30 stories a building, uh, apartment building in New York City. And I went around a week before and I planted clues all over these floors and up in the roof and in the lobby. And the kids, I, I, they were going to form two teams and I was going to have them go all over the building finding these clues to go to the next clue to, co to get a prize. And this, I planned this out. It was fantastic. It was this great scavenger hunt. And I remember when I was explaining it to the kids in the party, the, what I hadn't told them is that the clues led them all around the apartment building, but then it led them right back to where we were standing in this cabinet, and the prize was inside the cabinet. And so it was like, which, kid, which team's going to get the prize, right? So as I'm explaining this and getting them all ready, they were going to run all around the building and stuff. As I'm doing this, one of the kids is kind of a precocious young, young boy. I don't know how he knew this. I don't know. We didn't know the kid. But he just walked over to the cabinet and said, you mean we find a prize? And he opened the cabinet, and he goes, you mean like this one? I could have strangled this kid. <laughs> it's like he wrecked the plan. It was so great. He just wrecked it all with one, one moment. Why? Because when people are involved, they wreck the plan. Jesus found this in, out in the Gospels. Jesus would, would plan things. He would train people. like he, he trained the disciples to cast out demons. And then he went up a mountain. He came back down from the mountain. And what happened? The plan got messed up because they, they couldn't cast out the demon. And they asked him, why, why couldn't we cast out the demon? He said, you know, you didn't have the faith for it. So there were all these moments of frustration uh, in the gospel where Jesus uh, has this plan, and then it gets messed up. Why? Because real people are involved. So frustrating. They mess up the tomb of Christ. They mess up the scavenger hunt, and they mess up the greatest moment of the gospel. They mess up Jesus's greatest moment. I don't know if you caught this as, as Amanda was reading it for us, but let's look at verse 17 in the text that we just read. If you'll notice, it says that they went to Galilee. Now, Galilee is pretty far away from Jerusalem, way up north. So what you have is Jesus telling the disciples, after, after I die and rise again, meet me in Galilee. Then he dies. And so the disciples, these 11 guys, they go to Galilee. So they're, they're showing certain amount of faith and devotion because they're acting on the word of this guy who had died, right? 
And yet they show up in Galilee. And then verse 17, look at what it says. And they worshiped. In this translation it says, but some doubted. They worship, but some doubted. And let me just tell you, sorry to go into the grammar here, but that some is an interpretive some. It doesn't really say some. In the text, it just is the personal pronoun. It's just they and they. In fact, if you were reading this sentence, apart from the context here, if you just found this sentence on a paper and read it, in Greek, it would be, and they doubted. But it does not get translated that way usually. I know one, maybe the New American Bible translates it that way, but usually translators translate it as some because it is so strange to think of saying that people were worshiping and they were doubting at the same time, right? You don't think of things that way, but that's what people do, friends. That's what real people actually do. They had come to this mountain. They were showing an act of devotion, and yet they were thinking, I don't know if, I, if, I don't know if I'm accepting this. He's standing there in front of them, and they're hesitating in their hearts. They're of divided convictions, convictions. So children, this is what you want to be drawing here. You want to try to draw someone and see if you can draw someone's face and show that face worshiping and doubting at the same time. Okay, it's kind of hard. That's your challenge, though. Draw a face showing worshiping and doubting at the same time. Now, however you read this, even if you say, well, no, I really think it's some of them. Some of them doubted. Well, some of them then are in this position of both following Jesus and doubting at the same time. They came to, to the mountain. This is the act of devotion. And yet, here they are at the same time, um, hesitating, showing doubt in their hearts. This is real. This is what real people are like. You know, this word for doubt that's used in Greek, distazo, it's used only one other place in the Bible. You know where? It's in another situation where we see this same kind of worship and doubt at the same time. It's a time where the, the, the disciples, again, are in this boat and they're in a storm on the Sea of Galilee. And then all of a sudden, in the, in the midst of the storm, they see Jesus Christ walking to them on the water. He's walking towards them. They can't believe it. They think, oh my, this must be a ghost. He says, no, it's not a ghost, it's me. Simon Peter says to him, if that's really you, Jesus, tell me to come to you. And Jesus says, come. And so Simon Peter, in the midst of the storm, he throws his leg outside of the boat and he puts his weight on this water that he had fished in all of his life. He knew that water. He knew the Sea of Galilee. He knew what it could do. He knew what it couldn't do. And he knew it couldn't hold up a man. And yet he put his weight on the water, stepped out of the boat and walked towards Jesus on the water. Now, I don't know what you call that, but I call that faith. <laughs> that was faith. And what happens? Why is this word doubt used in that passage? Because he looks at the waves of the sea. He looks how high they are. And what happens? He starts to sink. While he's walking and showing this faith, he starts to sink in the water. 
And Jesus has to reach out and grab him and says, oh, why didn't you, why did you doubt this word, distazo? Why did you doubt you of little faith? So what do we have there? We have someone again who, who at the same time, he's believing. He is actually putting Jesus Christ in, in the proper place. And at the same time, um, he's doubting. Uh, this is what people are like, friends. Walking and sinking. You see it with, with Jesus uh, and, and the disciples in Gethsemane before this resurrection, right? He's in Gethsemane and they're with him. They're like, One, we're with you 100%. We are going to die for you. We're going to go wherever you go. We're going to die for you. Jesus says, you don't have to die for me. Actually, you just have to stay awake. And what do they do? They promptly fall asleep. <laughs> There's so much there. And yet... At the same time, they're fickle in their faith. They're fickle and they, and they doubt. That's how we are. I notice that in me. You know, I haven't, I haven't doubted God's existence. I haven't doubted the salvation of Jesus Christ for decades. But I can, I can tell you when I'm worshiping sometimes, I'm not trusting him in the way that he deserves to be trusted. I see this in myself as well. I am not giving him the trust and, and absolute um, uh, adherence that he deserves uh, while I'm worshiping. So you know what? Verse 17, I can believe verse 17, sure. I can believe that because this is, this is the way it is with people. They worship and they doubt. In fact, friends, this is how you know, you can know this is true. Some of you, you're like, I, I'm not sure if the Bible is really telling me what's true. This is one of the ways you can know that this is true. Because this is not how fiction is written. This is not the way you would write a story if you were trying to convince people to believe, would it? But this is what's real. You know, this is not how you would, you would, you would phrase the story if you were making it up. If it weren't true. You know, this is the, this is the climax of the gospel. This is, this is the last passage in the gospel of Matthew. This is it. This is the great scene. This is Jesus' vindication. This is his great moment. This is where it all, you know, it, it all becomes known. You, what's the story supposed to be? The story's supposed to be now everybody sees and everybody believes, right? If this were a movie... The music would swell and, you know, everything, the lighting would be perfect, you know, on Jesus' face. And he comes, he sees them, everybody sees it, everybody believes. It's his big moment. And they mess it up. <laughs> they mess it up with, with uh, Thaddeus leaning over to Thomas and saying, you know, I don't think that's really him. It doesn't really look like him. And, you know, the guy died. <laughs> And, you know, this is getting a little bit out of hand. I thought I was joining a religious movement, but this is, like, too much. You're getting those kinds of discussions during his great moment. That's how you can know it's true, friends. That's how you can know that these accounts are true, because they are real. They're, they're, this is actually how people are. They're real people. And you need to know this. You know, you need to know whether these things actually happened or not. It's, it's fashionable these days what you hear people say is, well, you know, it doesn't really matter whether it's true or not because 
it's truer than true. You know, you have Jordan Peterson saying, it doesn't matter whether it actually happens. It's truer than true. All right, I'm sorry, Professor Peterson. I mean, a brilliant guy and everything. But this is my life we're talking about, okay? I am not going to take my foot and put it outside of the boat, put my weight on it. You know, to be a Christian these days, it's risky. To be a Christian in this day and age, it means you're risking, okay? And there are certain things I have to risk being a minister of this gospel. And it's, it's a risk. But I am not going to get out of the boat for some Jungian archetype, you know, that, oh my gosh, it's so beautiful. I want it to be true. Therefore, it's truer than true. What does that mean? No, no. Maybe it's brilliant, but it's not enough for me. It's not enough for me to get out of the boat. I need to know if it's true. I need to be persuaded that this is true. And this is one of the ways you can be persuaded that this actually happened. Because nobody would write this if they were trying to convince you that was true. Would they? But it's real. But it is the way people really are. When Jesus has his big moment, they mess it up. They mess up, they mess up the movie moment. Worship and doubting. Oh my gosh. But you know, there's another reason, a better reason that you can know that this is speaking to you this morning, that this is true. Let's go back to the church of the Holy Sepulchre. So here in this tomb, okay, you see it encrusted over with all this marble. You're like, I can't even see what's going on. I'm not even sure where it would have happened, you know? You see all this happening here. Well, it's a, very, it's a privilege, really, to, to be living in our time, folks, because just six years ago, it was about six and a half years ago, there was a, there was a time that came when they, when they realized that there was so much water damage in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that they had to do a renovation. And normally they don't touch anything in this church because they have different sects of Christianity that are at war with each other and they're fighting each other, the, the Orthodox and the Catholics, and they're like, they, they can't agree to do anything with the church. Um, and so they, have this, they actually have this law that nobody can touch anything. They call the law of the status quo. You can't do anything. But you know what happens when you don't do anything with the building? It falls apart. Right? And so the Church of the Holy Sepulchre eventually falling apart here. There was so much water damage, they realized we had to do something. We have to do something, and we have to agree that we're going to do a renovation. And so they decided to do a renovation. They had to renovate the edicule. Okay, children, there's that word again. It's the last time you'll ever hear it. Edicule. They had to renovate the edicule. And so for the first time in hundreds of years, this marble that we're looking at here. That draw here. Right here was removed for the first time in hundreds of years. And archaeologists, the, uh, the National Geographic did a special on this. You can read about the archaeologists had 60 hours to photograph and analyze and understand what it was that was underneath this shelf, this marble shelf. You know what they found? 
they took off the marble shelf and um, they began to, to, what they saw underneath was another marble shelf, but it was all broken in pieces. It was all broken up in pieces. And they were like, why on earth would somebody encase uh, another marble shelf that was all broken in pieces left on top of what's lying beneath? And then it suddenly dawned on them. They realized they were looking at history. They were looking at Sultan Hakim's pickaxe work on this very site. They realized that this was where Sultan, Sultan Hakim had broken up with a pickaxe. And, and when Constantine had, had kind of gone over it, um, what, they, what, what had been underneath was Constantine's work. And they found that there were still pieces of mortar that were holding the broken pieces to what was underneath, the shelf that was underneath. And they were able to date that mortar by what was called optically stimulated luminescence. They call it OSL, optically stimulated luminescence. And when, when they dated that with optically stimulated luminescence, OSM, OSL, they found that, it, that the mortar dated right to about 345, okay, the time of Constantine when he was building that. So they realized that they were looking back through history to that period of time. And do you know what they found underneath that? A simple limestone burial shelf from the first century. And so they realized this was the place. They were able to confirm this was, in fact, the place that people had been saying all along by these unspoken chain of, of Christians in, Jer in Jerusalem, this was the place where Jesus had died. This is where it happened. And it tells us something, friends. It tells us what God does in response to people messing things up. He takes those things and he uses them for his greater plan. For he has a plan that he's going to use them for. Because I realized that if people hadn't messed things up and done all of these things through history, we would not have the trail that confirmed that this is in fact the place where Jesus was laid. You see, if they hadn't done all these things, we wouldn't have the, we wouldn't have the history there that we then understood by means of these different dating techniques to, to trace it back with with the historical sources and the literary sources to tell us with, with a very high degree of certainty, this is where it happened. So God used, God used the mistakes of people to actually confirm the truth here. He used all of this encrusting activity to preserve the truth for us about what it was, really uh, where it was. And that tells us something, friends. This is how he responds to us when we worship and doubt at the same time. When we mess things up, he uses that, and he actually, in graciousness, doesn't bring condemnation to us. Instead, he brings us onward and makes that part of the plan. He turns that into a greater part of the plan. You could see it in verse 18, right? Verse 17 is important, but not as important as verse 18. After they mess up his big moment, after they don't give Jesus his due, they don't worship him for rising from the dead. They're worshiping and doubting. What is Jesus' response? What, how does he respond in verse 18? He goes with it. He reassures them. He tells them he's going to be with them always. Even after... 
They ruined the scavenger hunt of the birthday party. He goes on with the party. That's the way he rolls because they rolled away the stone. Because he rose from the dead, he took all of our condemnation. He brings not any of that condemnation to us now. When they fell asleep, when they fell asleep, he kept praying. When they doubted, he encouraged. And even when they ruined his great moment, he he turns around and entrusts to them the church in this passage. And so these 11, 11 apostles who, if there's some of them or all of them worshiping and doubting, they were brought onwards by Jesus to go and give their lives for him. They were brought to a place of true worship. We know this historically, that these men went forth and, and went to a place of total worship, total commitment, because they gave their life for him in history. And that's the way he does it. So children, that's what you want to draw now is the, the apostles going forth with this good news in their lives, in their mouths for people. And this is what you need to know this morning. If you want to celebrate Easter well, if you want to understand this, understand this message about what Christ does when you mess up, when you mess up the story. When you might be here, you might be having faith and, and worshiping, but doubting at the same time. Look at him accept that in this passage. If you worship and doubt, if you have failures of, of faith and, and start sinking, this is what he does with you. He reaches out to grab you, sinking in the water. He accepts you even with your lacks if you come to the mountain. He brings you on to much greater things, to a place of total worship. Happy Easter. Please stand.